This week, the FBI released some previously undisclosed documents related to the 1963 Kennedy assassination. For some reason, among those documents were FBI files related to the late Reverend Martin Luther King, even though they didn't seem to have any connection to the assassination. These documents paint a very unflattering picture of Dr. King's personal life, specifically his chronic lack of fidelity to his marriage. Now, as many people know, under J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI had engaged in a long campaign to find, or in some cases invent, damaging personal information about Dr. King. So it's certainly possible that some of the information that has been released by the FBI was not entirely accurate. That said, long before the release of these files, even Dr. King's close associates in the civil rights movement had acknowledged that he had failed frequently in this way. So despite the good that Dr. King was able to do in his ministry, he certainly led a private life that was in many ways regrettable. Sadly, we see this pattern replicated in the lives of many powerful or famous people. They often have significant private sins that are very at odds with their public persona. We've seen this recently with the revelations about Harvey Weinstein and many other powerful men in Hollywood and show business. We've seen it with political leaders and with other movers and shakers in many walks of life. But this duplicity or hypocrisy, or whatever you want to call it, that seems to haunt the personal lives of many public figures is especially troubling or hurtful when it exists among clergy and religious leaders. With political or business leaders, we tend to measure them by their skills at pragmatic leadership or their ability to make some sort of social contribution. But with religious ministers, we expect something deeper. We expect them to be models of personal moral integrity as proof of the genuineness of their Christian witness. In the second reading, St. Paul speaks of the ideal religious minister, the genuinely selfless priest. He says, we were gentle among you as a nursing, as a nursing mother cares for her children. With such affection for you, we were determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very selves as well. So dearly beloved had you become to us. You recall, brothers and sisters, our toil and our drudgery, working night and day, in order not to burden any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. As a priest, it's humbling to realize that's the standard by which I am to be judged by God. One of the characteristics of the Catholic Church is hierarchy. Compared to other religions, especially to most Protestant sects, it's very structured and has precise lines of authority. I remember when I was in seminary, a relative of mine who's not Catholic asked me that if I became a priest, would I be able to go somewhere of my choosing and start my own parish? The way a Protestant seminary graduate might just decide to plant a church wherever he saw the opportunity to build a ministry. I had to tell him that the Catholic Church doesn't work like that. New parishes and apostolates get started by diocesan planning commissions not by a light bulb going off in some priest's head. The exceptions to this are fairly rare. Sometimes, by some circumstance, a priest will become something of a celebrity on TV or the Internet. Or maybe a priest is given the latitude to found some new religious order or ministry. And sometimes he'll then have a popular following and, of course, a very outsized influence. 
When that happens, I worry. Because experience suggests that many of those priestly careers go off the rails eventually. Fame, power, celebrity, these things tend to corrupt. Generally speaking, individual priests in the Catholic Church don't have a lot of power or influence outside the parameters of their ministerial assignments, which are controlled by their religious superiors. A priest usually only becomes powerful and influential in the wider church by becoming a bishop. And they really only become a significant public face for the church when they get to the level of being an archbishop or a cardinal. The wisdom in that is that generally one gets to those positions only well into middle age, or sometimes even later. By that point, it's hoped that the years of toiling in the vineyard have tempered youthful vanity and ambition. That's at least some protection against the allures of celebrity priesthood, because relative youth plus power and fame is a surefire recipe for disaster. In the gospel, Jesus calls out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Now, it's important to understand who the Pharisees were. They were different from another group that Jesus often quarreled with, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly class who held the formal office in Judaism of offering the temple sacrifices. By contrast, the Pharisees were a group of rabbis or teachers who didn't hold formal offices, but were still considered a distinct recognized authority in Jewish life at that time. In calling them out, Jesus was not taking aim at an easy target because the Pharisees were in fact very popular with the common people, especially compared to the more elitist Sadducees and the other Jewish leaders who were seen as pawns of Roman occupation. But notice something very interesting that Jesus says to the people who are listening to him. The Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you, but do not follow their example. Now, of itself, that statement is not so remarkable, in that we can imagine the wisdom in seeing that in many instances, we recognize the good in what a leader commands, even while recognizing that they might be personally failing to live up to it, even hypocritically so. But we have to remember that at many other points in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells the people that the, Jew, that the Pharisees are not just hypocrites, but are in fact flat out wrong in many of the things that they teach. For example, at various times he pointedly criticizes their understanding of marriage and divorce, of what it means to swear an oath, and of what it means to care for one's aging parents. The key to understanding this passage, I think, is that Jesus prefaces his remarks by saying that the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. In Jesus' time, in a synagogue, the Torah would have been placed on a small throne when it wasn't actually in use. This was the chair of Moses. Now, one possible meaning of this statement would be that in sitting on this chair, Jesus is suggesting that the Pharisees are trying to usurp the authority of Moses. By replacing the authentic teachings of the scripture, with their own personal and erroneous opinions. But that interpretation runs into the problem that in the next breath, Jesus tells the Jews, do and observe whatsoever it is that they tell you. Obviously, Jesus would not be instructing his people to follow wrongful teachings. Rather, Jesus is telling his people that they must respect the legitimate authority of the Pharisees and follow the teachings that flow from that. But they must also carefully discern 
when the teaching of the Pharisees exceeds or contradicts the revelation contained in the Torah. To the extent that the Pharisees teach in conformity with divine revelation, then they quite legitimately occupy the teaching office of Moses and deserve respect in that capacity. But when they extrapolate contrary to it or beyond it in ways that distort the faith, such teaching must be rejected, as Jesus demonstrates elsewhere in the gospel. The same is true in our day and age. There is a fine line of disturbance that we Christians are called to. On the one hand, we can't treat leaders, even in the church, with a completely uncritical spirit. We can't be blind followers of authority or get caught up in cults of personality. We can't let the media or the popular sentiment lead us, because then we will end up in a very bad place. We must always let the deposit of faith that has been perennially taught by the church be our ultimate guide. But at the same time, we can't, as some people are wont to do in modern times, separate respect for an office from respect for the person holding the office. St. Paul plainly tells us in 1 Timothy that we must pray for our political and civic leaders, not just pray that they exercise their office justly, but to actually pray for them and their spiritual and material well-being. How much more so this will apply to our spiritual leaders. A parsimonious charity that tries to rigidly distinguish between the office and the man holding the office is not Christian charity at all. Just as we cannot properly say that we respect a father or mother's authority without actually loving them as obedient sons and daughters. So too, we can't separate filial obedience to church authorities from genuine love and affection from the persons holding that authority. Scholars who have studied Pharisaical Judaism will tell you that as dramatic as the Gospels make Jesus' disputes with the Pharisees sound sometimes, these points of contention, while profound in many ways, were actually very often quite subtle. It wasn't a Twitter flame war. These were issues in which complex questions of law, authority, interpretation, and personality were swirled into one supercharged mix. As Christians in this day and age, we have to recognize that those dynamics still are and always will be present in the church, but now fired up by the internet and social media. Because of that, more so than ever, we need to commit ourselves to standing up for the gospel truth, but to do so with love, gentleness, and humility, both with respect to those who are above us, as well as with respect to those who are below us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.